Coming up in this episode, the challenges facing U.S. Central Command, ISIS. They have they have booby traps. They have what we call uh, vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices. I don't know if you ever remember watching the A-Team, but some of their vehicles, they take a car, the chassis, and they put... It looks just like something out of a out of a bad television show where they put armor all over it and they put a suicide bomber in there. Then there's Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, their niche is exporting terrorist plots uh, from Yemen. They hatch these plans and then through the Internet and other means, they get them out. Afghanistan. It is, uh, un- unfortunately, it's uh, unfortunately the forgotten conflict going on. Colonel John Thomas, spokesman for U.S. Central Command, lays out the situation in all of those areas and many more as a part of U.S. Central Command's areas of responsibility. And to quote the Navy SEAL phrase that's etched above the grinder in the basic underwater demolition SEAL compound, the only easy day was yesterday. That seems to especially apply to the U.S. Central Command looking at the road ahead for them. We'll discuss it with Colonel Thomas. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Responsible for U.S. military activity in 20 countries, U.S. Central Command is up against it right now. It's faced with multiple difficult generational challenges. The Taliban is surging in Afghanistan. ISIS, so-called caliphate, is crumbling in Iraq and Syria. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula continues to make deceptively clever and elusive bombs while engaged in a brutal fight to take over Yemen. CENTCOM spokesman Colonel John Thomas paints a stark picture for Target USA of the incredibly complex and dangerous challenges facing U.S. Central Command. Colonel Thomas, um, There is a lot going on in your area of responsibility. So would you begin by just giving us an update on where you are right now with all of your uh, with with all of your responsibilities? With all the the 20 nations that United States Central Command is uh, responsible for, our primary focus right now is on defeating ISIS. Uh, You may have heard that in Western Mosul, uh, they're very close to defeat and the Iraqi army has them surrounded but uh, the, the ISIS uh, terrorist uh, blew up a 800-year-old mosque uh, as, a, as a desperation move, I guess, to, to deny it from the Muslim world and from the people of Mosul uh, because they were, they're about to lose. So we're focused on, on destroying, uh, defeating ISIS in Mosul and then across the border into Syria, where they are also in the city uh, of Raqqa. And, and they've been there for building up for more than two years, almost three years. And that's, that's, our, that's our central focus. There are a lot of other things going on. And you may have heard in the news about um, unmanned area vehicles that we've shot down or 
uh, an Su-22 Syrian regime uh, aircraft. Yeah. So there's 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 a number of issues going on almost daily, mm-hmm. and we we're trying to maintain the focus against ISIS and maintain that momentum against them. Let me get uh, to a few of those things, and I'll ask you about them individually. But first, since you mentioned the situation regarding the Grand El Nouri Mosque, um, so you are certain, obviously, that it, it was they that blew it up and they did it intentionally because what they said was that someone else did it, the U.S. did it. And we, of course, got word from your team that that wasn't the case. But but are they now admitting that they did it, to your knowledge? Well, it, it's it's laughable that they would say we did it. Uh, it was we are we're working in close contact with the Iraqi security forces, and we understand the cultural and religious significance of of uh, a, a of that particular mosque, which is where uh, they chose to declare their their caliphate uh, more than two and a half years ago. Uh, that was it was not our intention to to do any any harm to that or to the people. In that area, we confirmed ourselves. We went back and, and we were taking. There were airstrikes in the vicinity uh, earlier in the day. That day, um, not at the time of or anywhere specifically near that mosque. We don't know precisely how they arranged the detonation, and but they 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 leveled it and they took out the the famous leaning minaret as well as the mosque. Um, uh, it is, it, yeah. it's clear. I think, I think the Iraqi security forces were right on it immediately and we did our due diligence and we, we met, went back to check just in case we were, we were striking in that area and, and maybe something had gone wrong, but absolutely that's not the case. Colonel, what do you believe then? Is there real reason f- for doing this? Have they given up? Do they, do they recognize that, um, this is, uh, this is over or was this just a, a vengeful thing? Well, I'm, I, I, I don't know that we're in the minds of 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 these uh, kind of uh, brutal uh, terrorists. Mm-hmm. They they they've been responsible for um, intentionally uh, slaughtering, gunning down civilians as they as they've tried to leave uh, Western Mosul in particular. It happened in Eastern Mosul as well. So it, they're they're not beyond fighting among civilians and then in fact killing civilians who are just trying to flee to get to to refugee uh, areas to to get out of the fighting. Uh, we, we, I, I can't really describe why they do it, but if you've seen, they're they're making no friends anywhere. Mm-hmm. They're they're attacking in Europe, in London. They're t- attacking even in Tehran, in Iran, um, and in the United States. They're claiming uh, responsibility for inspiring terrorist attacks against American people. So it seems to be just part of their their the way they operate to try to wreak as much havoc and 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 spread death uh, everywhere they can. Before leaving Iraq and moving over to Syria, do you have any update on uh, possible timing in terms of wrapping up that situation in, in, in Mosul? Because as I understand it, there are just a few hundred fighters that are pretty much surrounded. Uh, and um, one of your colleagues mentioned earlier last week that uh, the fighters there have two options, surrender or die. Um, do you have any any idea, or is I know you don't do timetables, and if you did, you wouldn't tell us. But uh, is there a general ballpark for finishing Iraq or the Mosul situation? It's important to remember that our our strategy and the way we've been proceeding against ISIS is what we call by, with, and through the indigenous forces. So in this case, that's that's Iraq, and the Iraqi uh, security forces, the the Iraqi forces are in the lead, and they're going to make a determination like that to, to some degree. That's a uh, a, a choice to to say where they believe it's just uh, clearance or mop up operations. Uh, they've indicated the Iraqis have that they believe that Mosul will they will make that declaration in the next um, uh, several days or a couple of weeks at the most. 
what what we're interested in is they are completely surrounded and we are there um, to to fully support with mostly airstrikes, but also we have advisors as close as we need to 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 help them through that and and navigating the very difficult ground that is trying to to uh, preserve the city as much as possible, certainly trying to preserve the lives and, and protect the lives of the civilians. And at the same time, this is an enemy that's been entrenched there for two and a half years or more. They have they have booby traps. They have what we call uh, vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices. I don't know if you ever remember watching the A-Team, but some of their vehicles, they take a car, the chassis, and they put it looks just like something out of a out of a bad television show where they put armor all over it and they put a suicide bomber in there. It's 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 laden with explosives and they and they drive it at the, the Iraqi security forces to try to do everything they can in, in really desperate move to, just to uh, lay waste to anything in front of them. I think they it seems that they if if they can't have the the territory, they're going to make it as painful and as difficult as possible. It's a it's a a foe that we cannot trifle with. They are. Uh, sophisticated and they are determined and it's it's a hard fight so uh, it's taken longer than some people had anticipated but I think for the right reasons trying to preserve the city as much as possible trying to preserve the lives of the civilians who are who are still living there and will and will come back and reoccupy it once it's liberated Colonel I've been told that a lot of the Yemen uh, a lot of the fighters in in Syria foreign uh, and uh, local if you will um, uh, certainly the senior leadership of the Islamic State group, you, you've seen them leave, and the fighters that are left there are uh, pretty far down the, down the total, totem pole in terms of um, how they rank in the organization. Is, is that a fair assessment? We, we know that foreign fighters were flowing into this, this uh, region that they were calling their caliphate for a, a good number, a couple of years, and we've really worked hard with a whole-of-government approach with our par- partner nations and the nations that border that area to stop the flow of foreign fighters. There is a difference with foreign fighters coming from other countries, coming sometimes from the United States, coming from uh, other Arab countries or European countries or African countries. They, they are different because they are there a lot of times um, to fight to the death. The, 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 the people, the, the ISIS members who live in that region, they may have families with them. And what what they tend to do is they tend to flee those areas when they when they've given up. They don't tell us when that's happening, right? But we 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 track them, we watch them, and they will get amongst among their family members. They'll make it very visible from above in case we have a, a, a unmanned system above watching, and they'll they'll hide among them so that or make it very clear that if we bomb them, they, we would be harming civilians. And they flee because they have they have family, they have assets, they have reason to. To move on to another place. The foreign fighters have already left their families, they've already left their nations, and they often seem to leave them behind to, to fight to the death. So it is, it's an unequal um, situation where the ones who recruit them are not really willing to die uh, and for the, for the ground that they, they're trying to keep, but the ones who are recruited are left there to, to fight, and they, they, they're sort of the uh, ones who have nothing to lose, and they, and they fight to the end. So we do see that dynamic. Moving to Syria, Colonel, that's a very complicated, not that Iraq isn't complicated, but if Iraq is complicated, Syria is much more complicated because of the those that are involved. You have the, the Syrians, the Russians, and the Iranians, and others uh, that are engaged, they say, against the Islamic State. But at the same time, there's lots of evidence that they're really engaged against Syrian democratic forces. Uh, and recently, we've seen evidence of 
Syria, uh, essentially uh, dispatching fighters, uh, air, fighter jets and drones to attack some of those um, U.S. supported forces there. Uh, how, how has that gone in the last few weeks or so? Bring us up to speed, at least certainly in the last week or so. There have been a couple of high profile incidents. Can you tell us about them? It is a very complicated and complex uh, battle space in Syria. We have uh, Turkey, our, our NATO ally, has interests. They're a border nation. Uh, Jordan, a, a, an ally, is a border nation. And Iraq, an ally, is a border nation. And then the Russians, like you say, are flying there. They work very, the Russians work very closely with the Syrian regime. Uh, and then there are all these different militias and, and, and different interests. You mentioned the, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a, a, a collection of militias that are well-led uh, uh, by, by Kurdish elements. But they are also significantly um, an Arab force now. They're recruiting as many as many people as they can on the ground. So there's what's going on on the ground is one thing, moving toward Raqqa, surrounding the city of Raqqa to liberate it, to, to, to flush out the, the, the ISIS troops. That's all happening mostly in the mid to eastern half of Syria. The western half of Syria, uh, Assad still controls most of those along the coast, uh, most of those cities. But he doesn't control the rest of his country. It's an ungoverned space. And there's a f more than 50 members of the coalition against ISIS in, across the world, 50 different nations, 52, I think it is today, who are, who are in agreement that we need to do everything we can. And they are contributing resources to go after ISIS. At the same time, there is that civil war going on uh, between ISIS and there's, there's elements of al-Qaeda. There's elements of, of Iranian regime. Uh, all, all happening, and then all those border conflicts with with uh, Turkey and and Jordan and Iraq. So you you rightfully describe it as a complicated uh, area. What we've tried to do with the the Russians, and therefore the Syrians, because we do not have diplomatic relations with the Syrians, we talk to the Russians on a telephone line, and we call it the deconfliction line. We don't coordinate or cooperate with the Russians. But if they're going to be flying somewhere, they tell us. If we're going to be operating somewhere, we tell them so that we don't have uh, – we're not in each other's way. And, and we don't have uh, aircraft flying in the same space and having safety of flight issues. We do count on the Russians to pass messages to the Syrian regime forces and vice versa if needed through that telephone line. And it's worked fairly well. Sometimes the Syrian uh, regime forces have, have uh, been confused or have not paid attention to where they are, what, where they're operating, uh, or perhaps they're trying to be provocative. We don't really care at that point. The one thing that is clear is if our forces, including our partner forces, are threatened in what is called collective self-defense, we will respond, we'll shoot down those aircraft, or we will respond on the ground if they are, if they are looking to attack the Syrian Democratic Forces, the vetted Syrian opposition forces, or certainly U.S. or, or coalition forces. That deconfliction line you mentioned, the Russians, after these last uh, events, certainly after the fighter shootdown, threatened to cut it off, uh, cut off contact. Did that happen? So it, it's it's um, it, it has led to I think tense situation in Syria with uh, our Turkish allies and then with the Russians as well, as different uh, nations have have interests there that that uh, are sometimes in conflict. We're really trying to focus everybody on defeating ISIS first. Once ISIS is cleared from the area, then there's a chance for diplomacy to work. Then there's a chance for 
the humanitarian efforts to get back underway and, and return these cities and this region to, to more freedom-loving people rather than, than the, the terrorists that are, that are ISIS. In general, everybody agrees that deconfliction line was set up for that purpose. The Russians decided that they wanted to go in and, and they wanted to, to attack ISIS. Okay. We, we said that's, that's okay, but we need to make sure that we are, are, are working, uh, not at cross purposes where we are not going to harm each other or lead to some escalation beyond that. That deconfliction line has remained up and running despite, I think some tense moments where some things have been said publicly at a, at a diplomatic and political level. We, we certainly take all those concerns seriously. We focus on the, what we call the military to military, sort of a, a service member to service member on the Russian side. Is someone going to be there to pick up the phone and answer the phone to talk about, to say where we're going to be operating? And that has gone on through, through all these uh, perturbations back and forth um, over the months. And it's really proved quite valuable. It, it continues even to today. We never know if they're going to pick up the phone tomorrow, but we go day to day on that. So just to be clear and to just wrap that up, they never, within the last week or so after that threat, they never abandoned this, this deconfliction line. We, we had it up and we had, there are some scheduled calls and then there are calls uh, as necessary. We never stopped uh, literally sitting by that phone and, and listening if it was going to call. They have made all of their scheduled uh, times that they call per week. And each time that we've been operating in that area, they've also picked up the phone to to uh, to be there for when we're going to tell them. So, so far, it looks like it's it's continued as as it had in the past. The situation with the drone um, was you mentioned that sometimes the the Syrians go off the reservation. Uh, is, it, it's my understanding that they there is an agreement that the Syrians have made with the Syrian Democratic Forces and, and I think the vetted forces that they would not go into certain areas and they violated that with uh, maybe the drone and the, sh- the fighter jet. I'm not sure, but perhaps you can square us away on that. But um, is it your sense that um, that situation with the drone was deliberate in one of those situations where they decided, regardless of whatever agreements they had, that they were going to do that? So a couple of things, uh, to, because it is so complex, the, the fighter jet, the Su-22, was a Syrian regime aircraft with a Syrian regime pilot in it. The, 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 what, what, what you call a drone, the, we call it unmanned aerial vehicle, uh, was Iranian-made, uh, and we're not we're not positive who was controlling it. You can you can, can you can control one of those unmanned vehicles from just about anywhere in the world. If you have connectivity, you sit there at a, at a with a joystick and you can fly that thing. Mm-hmm. So we're not positive exactly where who was at the controls. It had, we've had two of those uh, different instances. What we are sure of is we could see it. We can see on these on these drones. We could see uh, armaments hanging from the wings. So they were armed. They weren't just reconnaissance. And in one case, they fired, and it, it happened to be a dud. It did not uh, explode, but it got awfully close, and we shot that one down. The second one was flying, ignoring all uh, kind of rules of the road in the air there, um, where it was warned off by various means that are standard international protocols to, to indicate to the person who is flying it whether they're in the vehicle or not, whether they're in the aircraft or not. Um, they can see what we're doing. They can they should be able to hear the radio calls. And here's what's important, JJ, is they uh, it doesn't matter particularly where they're flying. It's when they are presenting themselves as a hostile with hostile intent um, and get and flying over or near or directly at where our our, our forces or our partner forces is. So there are there are no lines in the sand that they can't cross. 
there are uh, there is it's very clear to them though and we've made it clear through the russians telling telling the regime forces and telling anyone who might fly there and we say it publicly all the time if you present yourself as hostile if you're trying to fire upon or you come with an armed aerial vehicle uh, over trying to fly over us or partner or coalition forces we will take action before you have a chance to to fire us and that's 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 invoking the legal principle of of collective self defense as you look at the, the the episodes that have taken place within the last week or so, the Su-22 and then the Shahid drone, does that suggest or appear to be an escalation uh, by the Syrians or whomever? Um, and does that does that uh, give you any sense of desperation on their part? Well, it is an escalation. And what we try to do in each of those cases uh, uh, is we try to what we call de-escalate. So we don't want anything to lead to anything that really distracts us from going against ISIS. So we, we would like the regime uh, to to allow us and allow the coalition to fight ISIS if it's distracting from that or it might lead to a direct confrontation between us and the Syrian regime or us and the Russians. That's not good. Or us, uh, us and or, or Syrian Democratic Forces and the Turks. None of these things would be good. We really want to focus them on there. So yes, these are provocative sometimes. They are escalatory in some in, in some cases. And what we try to do is take decisive action in self-defense, but then uh, we try to keep all the lines of communication open. We do not want distractions from going after ISIS. And and this, the Syrian government, the Assad regime, has been uh, in the throes of a civil war for, for quite some time, years. And we don't take a side in that. We we we're not we're not involved in the civil war. It sounds crazy, but we're we're not taking sides. We're operating in that country, but we are going after ISIS only, and then we hope to withdraw as 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 rapidly as possible to defeat ISIS, and then let the Syrian question be resolved in other in by other matters. One of the key elements of the week of June twelfth, twenty seventeen, one of the big stories has been uh, a report from Russia that it had reason to believe that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi may have been killed in an airstrike on May 28th in, uh, in, in and around Raqqa, uh, may have been in an assembly with lots of other people, a large number of people. At some point, there were some estimations of maybe a couple hundred people. Uh, later in the week, they came back and said they were still examining uh, this situation uh, is there any evidence that Central Command has seen that there was this large gathering or some type of airstrike of that magnitude uh, and that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi may have been amongst that group? I'll, I'll leave it to the Russians to talk about what their intelligence is or what their facts are. We know that they they uh, they put out video. They put out a lot of information about where they struck and what and who they thought they struck. Um, al-Baghdadi is a person that we wouldn't object to if he were taken off the battlefield. Um, he is he's not a not a good guy and and certainly not helpful to us. We don't we don't cooperate and we don't we don't coordinate with the Russians. So all we do is what is this kind of bureaucratic sounding word, deconflict. So we we do know they tell us where they're going to be uh, firing. They do know where we are going to be bombing. Uh, other than that, we're not sharing intelligence. So I don't know what the Russians are seeing. We have no confirmation. We have no reason to believe that uh, Baghdadi was was uh, struck by them. 
uh, we might be surprised. That can that can always change. But we have we have no independent confirmation and, and no reason to think that that is is or isn't true. Uh, it, it, we'll we'll just leave it up to the Russians. Um, we're we're certainly not seeing that ourselves. What is Central Command uh, able to say in regards to uh, independent of that um, Baghdadi's status? Well, he's he's someone that we we would like to see um, uh, removed. He's he's he has been successful in in hiding. Um, he's been successful in most likely moving from place to place, and and uh, we do have we do have uh, folks who are dedicated to trying to track his and other high value targets whereabouts. But it's not the it's not the cause that we're going after is one particular person. We're trying to first deny this uh, so-called physical caliphate to ISIS and to stop the flow of foreign fighters, liberate the cities, return the control of the areas to the indigenous people. And there's a there's a larger there's a larger, I think, uh, battle of wills and ideologies that is beyond to some degree the military. But we're really trying to there. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of people through these different cities as we've marched along retaking the ground retaking the the cities that that ISIS took that we are we are quite honestly uh, happy to liberate uh, they are under dramatic oppression and and uh, from from people who care nothing about human lives other than their own and that's really the focus so uh, any particular player uh, if we can complicate it for them, if we can make it harder for ISIS to exist, to spread their hateful ideology, if we can make it harder for them to communicate across the Internet, we absolutely do that. Uh, individuals are, are not the, the prize. The prize is, is liberating and returning to local rule uh, these areas that they've taken. And then also trying to interrupt their their development and export of foreign plots uh, in the Western world, in Europe, in the United States, and, and, and even as we saw in Tehran. That's, that's really the goal. Listening to what you're saying, it's it's pretty clear that you, you the greater the destruction of the larger organization is is the goal. Do you think uh, the organization would be much different without Baghdadi around? Well, every organization has its has its uh, leader, and and it, one of the things we've tried to do is uh, make it very difficult for him or for other leaders of ISIS to even communicate to the outside world. There's been a dramatic drop off in the, in those horrific videos that, that some people had gotten, uh, unfortunately accustomed to seeing of people being executed on, on uh, internet video or of these speeches, uh, given rallying people to come into the area. Uh, that's not without, uh, some purpose. Uh, you, you see less of that because even in the cyber domain, I think that the whole of government approach of the United States and these 52 coalition nations has tried to make it so we take his and others' voices away. Uh, a, a, certainly a movement like this does have dynamic leaders that, that rally people. Like I said, they are, they are a, a, a viable foe, and we do take them seriously. But um, it, no movement hinges on just one person. Those foreign fighters and those inspired attacks, those, those, those folks who say that they are inspired across the Internet, across the world, to this cause of, of you know, brutal hatred and killing innocent people, um, that's, that's, a, a different, that's a different ideology that has caught on. And we really are working with the Europeans in, a, in a, what they call a counter-ISIS uh, coalition uh, to, to kind of attack that at the source and try to discredit what they're saying and make sure that these youngsters who believe that they're going serving some patriotic cause 
something that's that's serving their religion or serving freedom. We're trying to make it clear that that it's not freedom at all. It's just it's just brutal uh, uh, ideology of brutality and death. So is it is an individual person important? Certainly. But if we can take their voice away, whether or not they're alive, if we can take their credibility away and if we can take the land that they conquered, that they took over, uh, take it from them and, and deny that that sham of a of a physical caliphate that goes across international borders. They were trying to they said they were going to establish a new uh, uh, Muslim caliphate. We, we make that into a lie by taking those those cities back and giving it back to the local population. In the last couple of years, we have been media and most of the world has been obsessed with figuring out the situation with ISIS. And before that, Yemen was considered by many to be the most dangerous place in the world because of AQAP. What is the latest about uh, about Yemen uh, that you can share with us? The situation in Yemen isn't good, especially if you're one of the hundreds of thousands of people who are who are starving and who have been fighting a cholera epidemic. Um, and have been denied uh, aid by the the Houthi rebels who who have uh, taken over parts of that country. And like you say, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is also uh, working out of Yemen. And their specialty, their their niche is exporting terrorist plots uh, from Yemen. They hatch these plans, and then through the internet and other means, they get them out. So the government that we recognize in Yemen is in exile, um, and and it's not a it's not a good situation. The neighbor partner uh, and neighbor countries on the tip of the Arabian Peninsula there, they are engaging as best they can. Saudi Arabia is working to defend its borders. And what's what's also important, is in addition to it being a, a, a hub of exporting terrorism in Yemen and this, this terrible humanitarian crisis that the country is facing, is on either side of the tip of the Arabian Peninsula, you have the Straits of Hormuz, and you have what's called the Bab el-Mandeb, a very uh, narrow strait that leads from the Red Sea out so that, that that's access to and from the Suez Canal. So we're really looking to contain and control this ungoverned state that's called Yemen uh, so that it doesn't spill out into the ocean, so that it doesn't threaten freedom of navigation and freedom to operate of commerce to flow through the region. The the world's oil, large portions of the world's oil and energy reserves flow through those two straits on either tip of the, uh, the side of the Arabian Peninsula. So Yemen is not a good situation. Um, we also in Yemen, similar to Syria, are not taking sides in the civil war. We are conducting anti-Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula uh, uh, efforts to try to stop al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and we're trying to help, to some degree, Saudi Arabia maintain its border. But uh, that that civil war needs diplomats and needs the world to pay attention to it and try to get aid to those those people. How large is the force that's in Yemen, or, or at least engaged with Yemen? From the coalition side? Yes, sir. Very small. Uh, we, we're leveraging very small teams to try to have a significant impact. We, we have conducted more than 80 airstrikes in Yemen just this year alone, uh, so it's active. And, and there's some cases where we've, we've been uh, on the ground, and what we're trying to do is understand better how this network works in Yemen, trying to understand the enemy better, trying to figure out how they operate so that we can disrupt it and we can, we can stop it. But we're, you're talking very, very small numbers uh, and teams that do not spend more than uh, some number of days in Yemen and then exit again. Uh, it's special operations. There's no conventional uh, U.S. or coalition forces in there. And just like through this, I mentioned before, the buy with and through strategy, 
is to try to work indigenous population to take care of their own problem. We have unique assets like air power. We can refuel planes in the air. We can fly great distances. We can bring combat power and logistical support and food and, and different things that other nations can't. So that's how we enable them. But the, the folks on the ground, we're, we're hoping they can, they can, we can make them better to take care of themselves. But in Yemen, going after al-Qaeda, you'll, you'll hear occasionally news that we've, we've struck. Uh, just this past week, we, we announced we're striking targets. We're striking people to try to disrupt that particular uh, nexus of terror that does spend its time trying to export terror plots around the world. So Yemen and al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, do you get the sense that they're still able to produce and engage terrorist uh, plots and technology and all of the things they were known for, specifically because of Ibrahim al-Assiri and his uh, bomb-making expertise? Are they still able to engage on the, on the level that they were several years ago, which was fairly high? We, they are still engaging in that, but much less so. So those those uh, airstrikes that I talked about, more than 80 just this year alone, and the, the intelligence efforts that we focused and the special operations efforts we focused on them is really helping us understand and therefore disrupt who they are, how they operate, how they communicate internally and also to the external world. So we, we've had a significant impact on them, but they are still a, a, a viable foe that we take very seriously. And we're going to we're not going to we're not going to stop until we've we've disrupted and, uh, and and made it so that they are unable to export terror from Yemen. Afghanistan, critical right now. What can you tell us about that situation? Uh, so Afghanistan is also in our what we call area of responsibility. It is, uh, yeah. un unfortunately, and I, I want to make sure I mention it here because it's uh, unfortunately the forgotten uh, conflict going on. And we still have, and the international community still has a, an operation called Resolute Support there. Uh, and there's also a counterterrorism uh, uh, aspect to what we're doing in Afghanistan against uh, the Taliban, but also Al-Qaeda. And more recently and troubling is an organization called uh, Islamic State Kuristan, ISK, so an ISIS uh, offshoot. In, in Afghanistan. That's been going on for 15 or 16 years in Afghanistan. And, and a lot of people forget that we're, we're even still there. We don't. We don't forget it. And we're working uh, every day to, to try to make not only the capital safe, but uh, Kabul in, in, in Afghanistan. But really, we want to, and I think we're making progress toward building up the Afghan national government's ability to police its own cities, build a national police force, build local police forces, and also to uh, fight against the Taliban. Uh, in, in, and it's a very complicated region because of, of uh, the, the Pakistan as a border nation and the, the, the terrorists, the Taliban as well, flow back and forth across a, a rather porous border in very, very tough terrain. And so you've heard words like uh, Tora Bora, uh, 15, 16 years ago, and just in the last couple of weeks, uh, the 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 fight goes on, and what we're really trying to do is make the Afghans more capable of working these uh, insurgent issues on their own, and that's going to still take some time. But we're working to train, advise, and assist them, and and move them forward. Uh, it's not it's not it's not easy, uh, but we're we're in it for the long haul. Is there any news about troops troop levels there? So, no, not yet. I think what we're happy to see is I think the administration is taking a, uh, a big picture time to get the policy right and to decide what we want to do going forward after, after uh, you know, a decade and a half of, of uh, fighting and uh, building the Afghan government. 
uh, trying to get it right. I think you've seen recently the president delegated to the Secretary of Defense specific decisions about the number of troops. That, that'll make things uh, easier once that policy is decided, a little bit more agile, a little bit faster, um, so that we can get troops where we need them. And, and it's important to know there's there's a, a an anti-ISIS fight in Afghanistan. There's an anti-Al-Qaeda fight in Afghanistan. And then there's an anti-Taliban effort to build the Afghan national government. So the, the, the European, the coalition, the larger world coalition, they have a large part in the train, advise, and assist. It might be some extra U.S. forces can go in and more dramatically affect the fight against ISIS and the fight against al-Qaeda in that anti-terrorism role. So that, that, uh, that'll be announced, I think they've, they've said, uh, in the coming weeks what those numbers are going to be. It's not going to be a dramatic increase from everything we're hearing, but it will be some number of a few thousand or so perhaps uh, extra troops to go in and try to, try to make, make a difference there to stop ISIS from establishing a foothold in Afghanistan. Colonel Thomas, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. Hopefully we can um, re-engage again and do this fairly regularly. I look forward to it, JJ. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. You can also let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.